Elijah has just won the greatest victory in his life as a prophet of God. For three years, he has been rebuking the evil King Ahab and his wife Jezebel and calling on the northern kingdom of Israel to repent from her unfaithfulness and her idolatry. And it has not rained at all over the course of those three years at the word of Elijah as a sign from God of his displeasure towards the nation of Israel. And this conflict between Elijah and King Ahab comes to a head in 1 Kings chapter 18 on Mount Carmel when Elijah challenges Ahab and the prophets of Baal to a showdown. And he says in 1 Kings 18 and verse 21, how long, he asked the people, how long will you vacillate between two opinions? If Jehovah is God, serve him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. And in the next verse, he points out to the people gathered there. You see these 450 prophets of Baal. He says, I alone am left of the prophets of Jehovah. And so he throws down the gauntlet, metaphorically speaking. And the challenge is set. And after all day of the prophets of Baal embarrassing themselves, trying to get their God to bring down fire from heaven, the God of the storm and the lightning after all, Baal, of course, unable to do that. Elijah steps forward and says to God in chapter 18 and verse 36, Lord, let it be known that you are God and that I am your servant. And Jehovah answers Elijah on Mount Carmel in resounding fashion. It says that the fire of the Lord fell, consumed the sacrifice and the altar and the water that had been poured out and the dust around the altar. And Elijah, hoping to capitalize on this great victory, rounds up all the prophets of Baal, has them slain right there at Mount Carmel as the people cry out in verse 40, Jehovah, He is God. Jehovah, He is God. And as if that wasn't enough, Elijah sends a message to Ahab to say, I hear the sound of rain. He tells Ahab to get in his chariot and go to Jezreel. And the rain begins to fall for the first time in over three years in the land of Israel. And Elijah, running on foot with the hand of the Lord upon him, beats Ahab to Jezreel as chapter 18 closes. But what does this great victory accomplish for Elijah? Well, as we open chapter 19, it turns out it has not accomplished very much. When Queen Jezebel hears of what happened to Mount Carmel, she vows to murder Elijah in the same way that she's murdered many other prophets of God in Israel. And so Elijah has taken off. He's on the run. He has gone to the south, more south than Judah, to Beersheba, where he asked God to take my life. There's no point in carrying on anymore as a prophet of God. But instead of doing that, God instead feeds him at the hand of an angel and sends him on even farther south to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, where so many years before, God, through Moses, had made his covenant with his people, Israel. And so Elijah, 
like Moses, is on Mount Sinai, alone on the mountain with an idolatrous people down below. And like Moses, he doesn't eat or drink for 40 days and 40 nights. And like Moses, God chooses to pass by Elijah on the mountain. And Elijah hears from his cave or from the cleft of the rock, he hears the sound of a wind shaking the mountain, of an earthquake, of a fire, all of these reminiscent of when God before came down on Mount Sinai. But it is not in those obvious signs of power that God is present. Instead, Elijah hears the sound of a gentle blowing. And recognizing the presence of God in that, in chapter 19 of 1 Kings, verse 13, it says that Elijah wrapped his face in his mantle, and he went out into the presence of God. And God asks him there on Mount Sinai, What are you doing here, Elijah? And in chapter 19 and verse 14, Elijah said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. This is a critical moment in the life of the prophet Elijah. But we're not here to, to talk about Elijah this weekend. We're here instead to talk about Elijah's successor, Elisha. And it is my opinion, although I may be wrong, I'm happy to be wrong, that Elijah is much more familiar to us. I'm guessing that the story that I've just related to you from 1 Kings 17, 18, and 19 is familiar to some extent. The story of Mount Carmel and Elijah and Ahab. But Elisha, who takes over after Elijah, perhaps we don't know as much about. I hope I'm wrong about that, but if it's the case that we're less familiar with the hidden gems of the Elisha story, as Tim mentioned, then I hope to be able to rectify that some this weekend. I'll say right now that I believe that if we can understand the stories of the prophet Elisha better, it will do a few things for us that are very important. Understanding Elisha will remind us in a world of overwhelming evil that God's word is still true. And it will also encourage us that God is faithful to keep his promises and save a remnant of his people. And it will, I believe, put a spotlight on Jesus of Nazareth that we will see in Elisha the mission and the message of our Lord more clearly. And I believe it will provide a blueprint for us who live in this dark world as the men of God and as the women of God. And I'm looking forward to our studies together. I've been looking forward to being here for quite some time. I know there are many of you, perhaps all of you, that are disappointed that I did not bring my beautiful wife, Beth, and our son, Asher. So I apologize for that up front. You can leave now if you want, or not come back after tonight. That would be fine. <laughs> Thank you, Miss Savannah. I appreciate that. I need to take Miss Savannah everywhere I go. You know, I was going to say that the Church of Bel Air sends greetings to the Church of Castleberry, but then they decided to show up 
and bring the greetings themselves. So I'm thankful to have some of our own with us uh, tonight at least. But I've been looking forward to this. The church at Castleberry here and the church where I labor at Bel Air in Houston, Texas, has quite a number of connections among the people. And so through those connections and through other uh, connections that I have to many of you that I've known, uh, some for, for several years, uh, I think highly of this congregation. And if nothing else, by reputation, you should know that the Castleberry Church has a good reputation in the Lord. And so I have been anxious to spend this time, although the time is short, getting to meet as many of you as possible, spend time around you, and encourage each other in the Lord together. So I thank you for your warm welcome, Tim, for offering that on behalf of the congregation. And Larry, for your welcome as well, and the good singing that you've been leading us in and will continue to lead us in this weekend. And you can keep your name on the flyer. That's just fine with me. I'll even give up my number one spot to you. As it turns out, the moment full of tension and expectancy and question that we've just talked about in regards to the life of the prophet Elijah is also a critical moment in the history of Israel, the northern kingdom itself. And it is at this critical moment in Elijah's story and in Israel's story in 1 Kings chapter 19 that we are first introduced to our hero for the weekend, the prophet Elisha. So I want to pick up reading where we left off in 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 15, and remember what we've already seen. Keep in mind the struggle in Israel between Ahab, the wicked king, and Elijah, the prophet of God. Keep in mind the victory that Elijah has just won, and keep in mind the despair that Elijah feels as if nothing has been accomplished and things are now worse than they were before. God says to Elijah, beginning in 1 Kings 19 and verse 15, it says, Jehovah said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you have arrived, you shall anoint Haziel king over Aram. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Mohalah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall come about that the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel... Jehu shall put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So, verse 19, Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with 12 pair of oxen before him, and he was with the 12th. And Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. He left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please, let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? So he returned from following him and took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. As a side point, I think it's instructive that the first word that God speaks to Elijah in his despair is go. I think sometimes when we are despairing and feeling sorry for ourselves, that's precisely what we need to hear. Get up, go do something. That will help. There is work to be done. 
But in God's response to Elijah, there's essentially two elements. The first is that God says, Elijah, I have a plan. I'm working on things, okay? Things look bad, but there are things in motion. I have a plan for Israel. And the second thing he wants to point out is, Elijah, you're not actually alone. It feels like it, but there are 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. And in both of these components, God's plan and the fact that Elijah is not alone, Elisha plays a critical role in God's workings with Elijah. Elisha is a critical element of God's plan going forward. And there are two images that are used in the text here to describe Elisha's role, what Elisha's role will be going forward. The first is that of a sword. There's three people that God wants Elijah to anoint, three swords for Israel in the years to come. Haziel will be king of Syria. He will be a sword of oppression to discipline the nation of Israel. Jehu will be anointed as the future king of Israel. He will be a sword of cleansing to finally rid Israel and Judah of the house of Ahab. And Elisha, God says, will be a sword in Israel. And that's perhaps a little bit confusing because there are no stories of Elisha wielding a sword. In fact, as we will see, Elisha is a fairly peaceful prophet, even compared to Elijah, his predecessor. And so maybe that's something that we want to think about going forward. In what sense is Elisha a sword in Israel? But that's exactly how God describes him. But the other image, the sword, is one image for Elisha. The other is the plowman. When Elijah finds Elisha, he is plowing in the field with how many pair of oxen? Twelve. Which I think is a symbol of Israel, the twelve tribes of Israel. That's what Elisha is going to be, a plowman for Israel. A plowman who turns up the ground and gets it ready to receive the seed. Gets it ready to receive the word of God so that it can bear fruit. Elisha will be a sword, he will be a plowman in Israel, and of course he will be a help, a friend, a support to the discouraged Elijah. And so Elijah anoints Elisha here in 1 Kings 19. But you're probably familiar with anointing in the Old Testament having to do with the use of oil. Typically, if it's a priest or a king or a prophet who is anointed, oil will be poured out on their head. But here, there is no oil used. Instead, Elijah takes his mantle. We remember that mantle that he used in the presence of God, and he throws it over Elisha. Well, Elisha knows exactly what that means. And he tells Elijah, I'm going to follow you. I'm going back to say goodbye, and I will follow you. And we shouldn't get confused with some of the things that Jesus said about not going back to say goodbye or to bury father or mother. That's not what's going on here. It's clear what Elisha intends to do. He's only going back to say goodbye. And when he goes back, he takes those oxen and he offers a sacrifice. It's, a, it's an act of worship, for one, offering worship to God. But two, it's a very symbolic act of taking his former life and sacrificing it, burning up even the implements along with the oxen in one last act of sacrifice, worship, and commitment before he goes and follows Elijah without turning back. And so Elisha takes up his calling as the prophet of God. Uh, surely he would have known how difficult the prospects for that in Israel at the time would have been. 
But Elisha's not mentioned again in our text for quite some time. So we're going to fast forward through the rest of 1 Kings and the beginning of 2 Kings, which, by the way, are one story. These books were divided up at some point, I guess, for length, but they were not originally intended to be two separate books. So we should read it as the book of Kings and see it as one continuous telling of the story. I'll point out some highlights in this section of Kings before Elisha shows back up. In spite of Elijah's complaining, there are, in fact, other prophets in Israel, as it turns out. In chapter 20 and verse 13, there is an unnamed prophet who prophesies to Ahab. And then in chapter 20, verse 35, there's the first mention of this group called the Sons of the Prophets. We'll have occasion to talk more about them throughout the weekend. But this appears to be a community of people that are banded together, committed to serving Jehovah, committed to the Word of God, and in particular committed to the man of God or to the prophet of God in Israel. The sons of the prophets are named as a group in Israel. And then in chapter 22, we have the mention of a prophet named Micaiah. So there are other prophets in Israel, as it turns out. And remember that plan that God said he was working? That plan starts being worked out in the next few chapters. The wicked house of Ahab. Finally, Elijah speaks for God, bringing their final judgment upon them, says Ahab will die, Jezebel will die. And by chapter 22 of 1 Kings, the judgment comes upon Ahab, who dies. And then in 2 Kings chapter 1, that judgment continues as Ahab's son, Ahaziah, likewise, at the word of Elijah from the Lord, dies after several of his men are killed with more fire from heaven that Elijah has brought down on top of them. So, there are other faithful prophets after all, and God begins working out his plan of judgment against the house of Ahab. And then, finally, we come to 2 Kings chapter 2, and Elisha enters back into the story, and we learn of how Elisha then takes this role upon himself as the prophet of God after Elijah. Let's read this chapter in two sections. Begin by reading about the departure of Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 2. It says that it came about when the Lord was about to take up Elijah by a whirlwind to heaven, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, stay here please, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Then the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over, your, over you today? And he said, Yes, I know. Be still. Verse 4, Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho approached Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take your master from over you today? And he answered, Yes, I know. Be still. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he said, As the Lord lives, as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Now fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood opposite them at a distance, while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Elijah took his mantle, folded it together, and struck the waters, and they were divided here and there so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. 
He said, you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. As they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire, horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. Elisha saw it, cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah, fell from him, and returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and struck the waters and said, Where is Jehovah, the God of Elijah? And when he also had struck the waters, they were divided here and there, and Elisha crossed over. The beginning of the story is perhaps strange to us with the repetition of the same thing happening over and over again. Elijah telling Elisha, I'm going on, you stay here. The sons of the prophets telling him, don't you know your master's leaving? The locations themselves are significant. They go from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho, then to the Jordan and over the Jordan. Each of those locations was a significant moment in the history of the conquest of Israel. So there could be a symbol here of God's presence departing from Israel in the same way that it came into Israel in the days of Joshua. But maybe more basically than that, we see the persistence of Elisha, that over and over again he refuses to part from his master, maybe in a way reminiscent of Ruth and Naomi in that beautiful story. But the sons of the prophets tell him, Literally, your master will be taken from over your head today. That's the language used in Hebrew. Your master will be taken from over your head. And yet, still, Elisha is faithful to his master. And he gets one final request from Elijah. And he asks Elijah to give him a double portion of his spirit. Who knows why Elisha wanted this? It could be that he saw all the amazing things Elijah did of the power of God, and he wanted to do even more in Israel. Or perhaps Elisha understood that Elijah was just getting things started and that his work was preparatory and then handing the baton off to Elisha. Either way, Elijah tells him, you see me taken, you'll receive that request. And that's exactly what happens. Elisha sees the chariots and the horsemen of God, the fiery flames that carry up Elijah. And all of a sudden, Elisha, who has been with his master so faithfully all these years, is alone. And he looks down, and what does he see but the mantle, the mantle of Elijah that had anointed him. And he picks up that mantle, and he walks back to the Jordan, and he asks this very interesting question in verse 14. Elisha himself says, where is Jehovah, the God of Elijah? Interesting to think, who is Elisha saying this to? Is Elisha speaking to himself, or as we would say, he said to no one in particular? Is this Elisha thinking his thoughts out loud? Is Elisha wondering to himself, man, is God really going to be with me? Has my request been answered? Will Jehovah and Jehovah's Spirit be with me in the same way? Or it could be that, you know, there are places where the Jordan River is not much wider than a creek, as we would call it. And remember those sons of the prophets were there waiting on the bank of the Jordan. It could be that Elisha is saying it for their benefit. Where is Jehovah, the God of Elijah? 
And he takes that mantle and he strikes the water. And the question's answered, at least in part, because as those waters parted for Joshua all those years ago in conquering the land, as the waters had just parted for the man of God, Elijah, the waters part for Elisha, and he enters back into the land of Israel. And so it appears that God is with Elisha in the way that he was with Elijah, but that question is still hanging in the text. And the rest of the chapter, I believe, is an answer or a continual answer to that question. So let's finish up 2 Kings chapter 2. It says that in verse 15, when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho opposite him saw him, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. And they said to him, behold, now there are with your servants 50 strong men. Please let them go and search for your master. Perhaps the spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him on some mountain or into some valley. And he said, you shall not send. But when they urged him until he was ashamed, he said, send. And they sent, therefore, 50 men, and they searched three days, but did not find him. And they returned to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, did I not say, do not go? Verse 19, And the men of the city came to Elisha. Behold now, the situation of the city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new jar and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. He went out to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have purified these waters. There shall not be from there death or unfruitfulness any longer. So the waters have been purified to this day, according to the word of Elisha, which he spoke. Verse 23, Then he went up from there to Bethel. And as he was going up by the way, young lads came out from the city and mocked him and said to him, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. When he looked behind him and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 lads of their number. He went from there to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. It is obvious that God is with Elisha the same way that he was with Elijah. The prophets, of course, see it in verse 15. The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. But there is still work to do in the minds of the people. There's the story of the, the guys that say, let's go look for Elijah, right? Uh, it's nice that you came back, Elisha, but let us just send some people out to go find Elijah. They clearly don't fully accept Elisha's presence among them as the man of God. But, of course, they don't find Elijah because Elijah is gone. Now Elisha is there among them as their prophet. And so what Elisha does is he retraces those steps that we saw earlier in the story. In the reverse order, he goes across the Jordan to Jericho and then to Bethel, and then there will be an interlude, but by chapter 4 he will come back to Gilgal. Each step of the way where the people said, Elijah's going on from you, Elisha goes back to show that he now is the true prophet of God in Israel. And perhaps as a reconquering of the land, as in the days of Joshua. But we also see here that Elisha is fulfilling his purpose that God has given him. Remember our two images for Elisha, the sword and the plowman of Israel. In these two stories, we see Elisha bringing blessing to those who turn to him, who seek him. And we see his judgment, the cursing of those who reject his authority. 
And this uh, story, the plowman curing the water so that it is healthy again, again reminds us of stories of Moses. It will see more of this in the life of Elisha, bringing life and fruitfulness where there is barrenness and death. He's blessing those who turn to him. But the sword of Elisha in this interesting story, this weird story of the two she-bears that come out of the woods to kill all these little kids. So questions about that story. Are they really little kids? Probably not. So put your mind at ease. Uh, the word here for the young lads is the same word. I think it's just used one other time. Uh, you remember Rehoboam? He was like a, a punk kid that became king. And he had his friends that he sought advice from as opposed to the wise counselors. It's the same word as Rehoboam's advisors, the lads. So I don't think the bears are mauling seven-year-olds uh, that made fun of Elisha. There's a little bit more going on in this story than that as well. They, of course, we remember, mock him for him being bald. But the language here, the literal wording is they uh, call him an uncovered head. That's the word for someone who's bald. So they're mocking him as someone who has an uncovered head. Well, remember what the sons of the prophets had just said earlier in the chapter about Elisha. They said, don't you know your master has been taken from over your head? And I think that this is intended to be connected and it indicate that it's not just that the lads are making fun of Elisha for his appearance, although that seems to be part of it, but the mocking of him is maybe instigated by the fact that now Elisha's all by himself. He doesn't have the big bad Elijah walking around with him to call down fire from heaven on everybody that messes with him, you know, like Elijah was doing. Elisha's all by himself. Who are you now, right? What are you? You think you're so great? Where's Elijah to bail you out? Something like that. And, of course, the mocking of his appearance. But, again, I think the focus is on the fact that these people, these lads, these young men, are rejecting the messenger of God. They're rejecting the one who has been given authority to speak the word of God. And so Elisha pronounces judgment on them. That, I think, is the essence of the sword of Elisha. That the work and the message of Elisha will separate. And it will bring to those who cling to him and seek him, it will bring life and blessing and fruitfulness. But to those that reject the prophet, reject the word of God, it will bring judgment and death. And so what do we make of all of this? Well, in general, of course, we see that. We see that God is working to keep his word, to judge evil, to save his people. And that God is working to do that and to keep his promises even in the darkest of times. But more specifically, we see that God is working and has been working in history to do all of this, to keep his word and save his people through Jesus of Nazareth. And I believe that this story and the rest of the stories we'll look at this weekend point us to Jesus. But they do that in a couple of ways. I think this is interesting. On one hand, this passing of the torch, the picking up of the mantle, shows us a picture of what will happen in the transition from John the Baptist to Jesus. Remember that John the Baptist is himself an Elijah figure. In Luke chapter 1, the angel tells Zacharias that his son John will come in the spirit of Elijah, according to the prophecy made in the book of Malachi chapter 4. And there are some similarities between John and Elijah. They even seem to appear the same, the way that they dress. They're these crazy guys, all by themselves in the wilderness, pronouncing harsh judgment on the nation of Israel. John even goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with the king and his wife, does he not? And his wife ends up being the one that has his head on a silver platter, literally. 
And so John is an Elijah-type figure, a lone prophet challenging Israel to repent. But what was John's ministry all about? Well, perhaps like Elijah, John's ministry was one of preparation and passing on to the next guy, the greater prophet. In particular for John, he says, I must decrease, he must increase. The one who's coming is greater than me. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. John's work was preparatory. And the transition between John and Jesus happened where? At the Jordan River. John and Jesus go to the Jordan and Jesus is baptized there by John, and Jesus is anointed by the Spirit of God, a much greater Spirit than the Spirit of Elijah. And Jesus, then anointed by God's Spirit, becomes the prophet who goes out and does God's work. And Jesus himself is a plowman and brings a sword. Remember Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 10, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. And he does it in the way I believe that we see Elisha being a sword in Israel, separating the faithful from the unfaithful, blessing to those who honor his authority and judgment to those who reject his authority. And so in this way, Elisha is a picture of Christ. And that goes along with a little bit of my uh, spiel about Elisha being underrated. I believe that Elisha is not as often thought of as being this foreshadowing and this picture of Christ in the Old Testament. We know that about Moses and Joshua and David. We see that maybe more clearly. Elisha is a clear image of Jesus in the Old Testament. And I believe that we'll see that this weekend. He points to Jesus clearly and emphatically. But that's not the only way that we see parallels to Jesus in this story. Because as it turns out, Jesus is also an Elijah figure in his own way. In all three synoptic gospels, in that, that moment where Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? All three of them mentioned his disciples saying, well, people say you're Elijah. There was something about Jesus that made people think of Elijah. And they made that connection to his ministry. It is Elijah and Moses, after all, right, that meet on the Mount of Transfiguration. Another connection to Jesus there. And like Elijah, Jesus' greatest victory was won when he stood alone on Mount Calvary, rejected by his people, killed by those that he was trying to win over, his own people. And so, like Elijah, calling Elisha to be his disciple, to leave all and follow him, Jesus has called us to pick up his mantle and do the very same thing. Jesus has, like Elijah, been taken up into heaven and given us his spirit. You may remember that in the Gospel of John, Jesus told his disciples, it is better for me to leave you so that the comforter, so that the spirit can come. I don't know what all Jesus meant by that, but there's this indication that this is better for Jesus in his bodily presence to go back into heaven, and for God's Spirit, God's very presence himself, to dwell with all of his people. How amazing is that? A double portion, we might say. God's presence with us. And so we, like Elisha, pass through those waters of baptism. We take on the mantle of Jesus, and we go out to represent him and to represent Jehovah God, carrying the same message of life and of judgment. This is what I wanted to see this weekend. Elisha is Jesus. We'll see pictures of the Messiah in these lessons. 
But Elisha is also us. It has a lot to teach us about how we live as the people of God in a dark world. And again, I'm looking forward to that. So we close. I assume we'll have a final song. Is that correct? I'm struck by this image of picking up the mantle. And Galatians chapter 3 mentions that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus have put on Christ. Maybe that's the image we want to leave here with tonight. Just as Elijah threw his mantle over Elisha, Elisha picked up that mantle on the other side of the Jordan River. We who have been baptized have put on Jesus. We wear him. So now, if anybody asks the question, where is Jehovah, the God of Elijah? Where is Jehovah, the God of Elisha? He's with his people because he lives with us and we carry him. We represent him in this world. That is an amazing privilege, but it is also a tremendously high calling. And so as we close tonight, let's leave with that calling in our minds. And if there is anything that this group of Christians can do to help you either to put on Christ or to better represent him in this world, uh, please feel free to come to the front as we stand and sing this song.